Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now uh, tuned in back to our regularly scheduled programming, our weekly episodes featuring different orthopedic surgeons on different topics, and today's topic is actually pretty cool. We're going to talk a little bit about some trauma. We're going to talk about some proximal humerus fractures with Dr. Jason Strelzo. Uh, a little bit more about Dr. Strelzo. He did his medical school at the University of British Columbia Faculty of Medicine. He did his residency there as well. And he did his fellowship in trauma at the London Health Sciences Center, the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. And again, today we talk about proximal humerus fractures. We talk about the physiology behind them. We talk about how to fix them. And if you have not already, uh, we have our YouTube page as well, where we have some of the different slides that we're referring to. And at the end, we actually go over a couple of cases. So if you want to take a look at those x-rays, go and visit us at YouTube at Nailed It Ortho. And we'll have some of those cases up there if you actually want to see the x-rays, the implants, and some of the things that we're talking about. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the episode for the day. And we have actually made this into a two-part episode. So part one is going to be mostly the pathophysiology behind it and some of the things to look for on physical exam, etc. And then part two is going to be more the treatment side of it. So without further ado, let's actually hop into it for uh, today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Strelzo, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. So Happy to have you uh, on and um, have, looking forward to talking a little bit about proximal humerus fractures. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to it. And what we typically do is start off just asking, you know, just a couple of questions, getting to know you a little bit better, and then we can uh, dive a little bit deeper into the topic of the day. Um, first question I have for you is that I know you have done your training and international training, uh, as far as residency and fellowship. And we're talking a little bit briefly, uh, off air about some of the places that you've been. Um, what, I guess my question is, um, how was the international training and what, are there any differences that you noted between training there and then, you know, some of the things that you do here in the U S yeah, um, great question. You know, I think I was for very fortunate to do training in, in Canada and then um, obviously in the, in the UK as well, and then now practice in the States. So I've, I've had sort of the opportunity to see a little bit of every system, so to speak, in terms of, you know, healthcare um, and, and healthcare delivery. From a training perspective, I think fundamentally things very similar, you know, we're, we're still seeing broken bones or still fixing broken bones and, and doing all the things that as orthopedic surgeons, uh, you know, we, we need to have the skills and the, and the required knowledge to be able to do. Um, I think there are definitely differences in the system, um, between, between the U S and between the UK and, and Canada, I think, uh, from a training perspective in Canada and the UK, there's a lot more uh, centralization of care. And so our, our training programs were pretty high volume, um, even compared to some of the high volume centers in the, in the U.S. And so we, we saw a lot, a lot of patients uh, and had a lot of exposure very early, starting in sort of first year and all through our, our five years of training, which I think is, is a really um, 
a great thing. I think the more you see, the more you learn and the more nuance you can pick up. So I think that's one, one advantage. And, and then I think seeing, um, seeing patients in some of the, you know, what we would call socialized healthcare systems where there is a, there's a strong push for not just evidence-based, but, but also cost-based care. Um, and so seeing some, you know, techniques that are very different or some treatment algorithms that are slightly different based on those factors, which gives you sort of this very broad and, and very wide breadth of, of knowledge for how to treat some of these patients that have, you know, proximal humerus fractures being one, um, or any other of the, you know, myriad of orthopedic, orthopedic concerns. So I think I'm very fortunate uh, having had that perspective and, and now, you know, training in the States, being able to bring that perspective with me, uh, I think it's a wonderful opportunity. So I highly, highly recommend it to anyone who's, who's considering it. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool, you, you know, just to be able to see how different places uh, work and then the systems. And that's like you say, you're exposed to a lot. Were you exposed to like a lot of trauma, uh, you know, over there? Or was just yeah. a different breadth of patients? Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, in the UK, you know, they have centralized um, uh, trauma care. So, you know, a specific hospital will be designated as their trauma center, much the way they, they have trauma centers here. But obviously imagine, uh, you know, unfortunately I, play, I, I practice in Chicago where we have multiple trauma centers. Imagine having an area that the size of uh, and care breadth of Chicago, but all concentrated into one hospital. Mm. So we definitely saw a lot of trauma, um, you know, or the hospital I trade in had um, anywhere between five to seven orthopedic rooms running a, on an, on a given. So oh, wow. um, a lot of volume. Um, and then the, and then the trauma was very different. So in, in the UK, there was a lot of geriatric trauma. Uh, whereas what I see in my practice now is a lot of young patients um, with some geriatric patients as well, but my practice is largely, you know, patients uh, between the ages of sort of 18 and 45 or even 50, which is a very different demographic. Yeah. I, I remember I was looking at the news and there was something about like, 150 killings last weekend in Chicago alone and, you know, even more injuries. So I, I know you all get your fair share of uh, trauma in Chicago for sure. We definitely do. Yeah, it's a, it, that's a whole other topic for another discussion, but certainly, <laughs> um, yeah, we're certainly very busy um, and see a, a very um, unfortunate breadth of, of trauma here. Yeah. And second question I have for you is, do you have a book that you've gifted to others? It can be an orthopedic book, a non-orthopedic book, a book on anything, but anything that you've given or told other people to read. Yeah, I so a, a recent one because I and I think it applies to my move to Chicago is is a book called Down White City. Um, it's a it's a fantastic book by Eric Larson that I, I tell everyone who moves to Chicago and then everyone who comes to Chicago to read because that's how I was introduced to it. Uh, and it tells the story um, in a sort of fiction slash historical fiction story of the Chicago's Fair, World Fair. Um, and it's just a fascinating read about the history of Chicago and the history of the time with a murder mystery kind of put beside it. That's all based in history and based in true story. It's a fascinating book. I, I probably, get to, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 people now to, to read. So. That'd be the cool. one I would recommend. Cool. Yeah. It almost has, I'm looking at it now, it has 9,000 
close to 9,000 reviews on Amazon. So uh, definitely want to probably check out at some point. And uh, the last question I have for you, do you have any interests outside of the field of orthopedics? Yeah, I think this is a critical, uh, critical. I think, you know, what we do keeps us pretty busy, obviously. Um, but I think you have things that you love to do. Mine, mine certainly, um, I'm a huge music uh, lover. So, I mean, obviously concerts, but also uh, play guitar and a couple other instruments. So I keep myself pretty busy that way. And then I've got two dogs that, um, that keep us pretty busy. So <laughs> just taking care of them and, and keeping them uh, keeping them running around and healthy. So those are kind of my two biggest interests, um, uh, outside of, outside of medicine. Well, that's awesome. Um, I, I have a dog, but she does not stay with me. She stays with my family and I miss her, uh, dearly and I always visit her, uh, when I go back, but anyways, uh, <laughs> transitioning, uh, to the next uh, topic. So, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about proximal humerus fractures today. Um, so say, you know, for example, you have a, 70-year-old male that was referred to your clinic um, as a referral after a fall in outstretched hand, found to have a proximal humerus fracture. He was seen in somebody else's ED, um, sent to you. Uh, but, but quickly, before we get into, you know, the nuances of how to treat these, what are just some things on physical exam when you, or, or history, when you get a history from these patients and on a physical exam that you uh, make sure that you want to know? Yeah, you know, I think this is where sometimes we get ahead of ourselves just in, and like you said, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, history, physical, uh, really keeps you out of trouble. So for all of all of the patients I see, the, the kind of run-of-the-mill questions I ask them all, just describe the injury. So how it happened, maybe why it happened, because often, especially in this patient population, there can be underlying medical conditions that can lead to them having that fall. Um, and so... Ask them, you know, were you lightheaded? Do you have chest pain? Or are there other aspects of the fall that I need to know about? Uh, and then other injuries. It's surprising how uh, easy it is to miss someone who's had a, you know, a fall. They were seen in an ED somewhere. And because their shoulder was uh, injured or they had a proximal humerus fracture, you forget to ask them about their wrist or they hit their head or did they hurt their ankle? Um, and so in history, those are kind of the main, the main ones that I want to get out of the way right, right off the bat. And then the other aspect that I think we need to understand for this particular injury pattern is what their functional level is um, and whether this is a dominant hand or a non-dominant because understanding where they want to go in terms of how much, how much they use their arm, what they're asking of their arm and getting a sense of what their physiologic level is. You know, the 70 year old could be a marathon runner who does uh, triathlons every weekend or a 70 year old can be someone who sits at home, does some reading and some, you know, daily activities, but nothing beyond that. So from a history perspective, those are certainly the things, um, that I focus on outside of specific nitty gritties about the, the injury itself. But, um, and then on, you know, on transitioning to a slightly more physical exam, I think you want to ask patients about, you know, what they've been doing with their arms since their injury. Do they have numbness or tingling either at the time or subsequent? Um, and then you transition just like you have on the slides here to the more objective uh, evaluations of those things. So looking at their skin, making sure there's no, you know, uh, obvious open wounds. They don't have a gross deformity suggestive of maybe a fractured dislocation, you know, where they get some squaring of the shoulder um, or a humeral head that's really prominent in the front of their front of their axilla. 
Um, and then uh, going from inspection, palpation, I, I typically, you know, especially if someone has, uh, has been clearly told that proximal humerus, I'm not really a palpation person. Uh, you know, I obviously, you want to be cognizant that their shoulder is going to hurt. Um, but making sure that their elbow, their wrist, their forearm, and their hand are okay, I, I do palpate all of those structures well away from the area that we know is hurt. Um, and so I'm a, a big proponent of that just to make sure you're not missing something. And then a really detailed neurovascular exam, as you have there, making sure that their axillary nerve works. And I think one of the tricks with that um, is really putting your, putting your hand or your palm over top of the, the deltoid and asking them really gently to fire, fire the axillary nerve or the deltoid muscle by just, just trying to lift their elbow away from their body and feeling the contraction of the deltoid. We know, we know um, that a lot of patients uh, have some dual innervation over their, um, over their shoulder and kind of lead you astray. They can report normal sensation, but their axillary nerve is completely out. And so you really want to feel that muscle fire. And I, it's, it's actually not as bothersome as it sounds to have a patient fire their deltoid. Um, and you just have to say, hey, give me one good effort. And once you feel the deltoid contract, you can kind of relax and and uh, and uh, go on to the rest of your exam. And then you also want to make sure they don't have a brachial plexus injury, so they've got no other nerves, no other injuries to the nerves in their their arm. Um, and then I, I typically leave reflexes and motion out of it. I mean, I, I don't want to really be moving patients' uh, shoulders too much yeah. if they if we know it's broken, and then reflexes at this point. Uh, if I've done a nerve exam, I kind of leave those leaves for later. Okay. Yeah. I think those are definitely good points that you made, especially on the history and trying to figure out like how physiologically uh, young these patients are. Just like you said, you can have a 70 year old that's out running triathlons every weekend, you know, that's in super shape versus the 70 year old uh, that is, you know, on uh, end stage dialysis, doesn't really move around too much, has a bunch of medical comorbidities on, you know, 18 different pain medication or not pain medication just on 18 different medications. And so you might, you know, they have a physiologically maybe a little bit older. So I think that's always definitely good to uh, good to try to tease out and especially figuring out why they happened or why the injury happened. I think is, I remember one time we had a patient that um, had a syncopal episode, but nobody really, um, nobody really investigated as to why or how or the preceding events as to what happened before they had that injury. So um, that was something that was missed that needed to be worked up for sure. Um, so yeah, I think those are all uh, very solid points and definitely solid points of the physical exam and not moving them around too much when you know that they have a fracture because you know it's going to hurt. Uh, that being said, what x-rays are you are you getting or what x-rays should you obtain in, in these patients that you know you're worried about that, that have these proximal humerus fractures or even somebody that you know they're, you're just told they may have a proximal humerus fracture what x-rays would you want to get yeah, i mean if i had my if i had the the ability to sort of pick and choose which ones i would get certainly yeah. um you know i, I think if I had to pick two, I definitely pick a Gracie AP. So that's, um, you know, the AP that's in line and your image is parallel to the glenoid face. Um, and then I would pick a Velpo axial. Um, and so th those would be my two. Now, typically in our hospital, we get a four pack. So that's a standard AP of the shoulder, a Gracie view, a scapular Y and some form of axillary. Uh, imaging. 
but realistically, these patients don't tolerate uh, the axial, a traditional axial view. Um, because if you ever sneak into the radiology suite and you watch them do that, what, what they are, what the techs are trained to do is abduct the shoulder to 90 uh, mm-hmm. and put, put the, put the uh, plate underneath and in their armpit. And you can imagine if you broke your, your proximal humerus, you, you wouldn't really want to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, um, yeah. So a Velpo is a nice way of doing that. Basically the patient kind of leans back into the image beam and you, you get a, an axial view. And I think critical, critically, that is the view you, you need to get. And, and we are sometimes a little lazy about getting it because it's, it's awkward and it's uncomfortable, but you have to see that the humeral head, like you see on the third, the third image there, um, that you, you get the ball on the T, so to speak. So the humeral head is facing the glenoid. Um, because it's very easy on an AP to get fooled and on a scapular Y view to be fooled that that humeral head is, is sitting centered when it actually isn't. So I think that's critical. Yeah. And I was going to say, so, you you know, you mentioned on axillary, you want to make sure that the shoulder is reduced and it's not a dislocation in your eyes. What else are you, you know, looking to make sure that you note in every patient, you know, what, just looking at just plain films, like, is there anything that, you are in particular is making sure, um, you know, that you notice this or that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think shy of looking and deciding is this operative or not. I think the, the other things you want to look for particular is where the fracture line extends. So are we looking at a kind of sort of more simple pattern? Is, is it a surgical neck or, or an anatomic neck? And then what's happening with the, the tuberosities. So, um, you know, if the tuberosity is off, where's it gone? How far away is it from where it's supposed to be? Um, and then the, you know, the varus valgus, uh, deformity in the, in the proximal humeral head, uh, may kind of help you understand the fracture pattern a little bit better. Uh, so certainly, you know, in my, in my run through of things, it's sort of the, the main things I'm looking for in an x-ray. What, you know, what's the varus, what's the valgus? And what's happening with the tuberosities? Because I think ultimately, those are really going to be what guides guides to your potential treatment options for the patient, um, and understanding the fracture pattern a little bit better. Okay. And in, and in what situations do you get a CT scan? I know it's not routine for everybody to get one, but are there situations that you get a CT scan? Yeah, that, that's a that's a controversial topic. Um, I like it. So typically for me, <laughs> um, for me, surgical planning. Uh, that's really where the CT scan comes into play. Um, I think I have a, I would like to think I have a good enough uh, approach to the plain films that I can decide, yes, this patient's probably one that we're not going to offer an operation on based on, you know, their, their physiologic status, their injury pattern and the fracture pattern. Um, And when it comes to surgical planning, if I'm trying to decide how I'm going to get there, and what I'm going to do when I'm in there, that's when I think the CT scan can be really helpful. Okay. And what are you looking for? Like on, on the cuts, do you get 3d recons with all your CT scans? And if so, what are you looking for there? And then what are you looking for on like your, you know, your axial cuts or your coronal cuts, sagittal cuts? Like what, what does your eye see? Like we're all trying to get into your head, trying to figure out what you're, you're looking at. Yeah, you know, I, in my in my training and my fellowship, uh, we got 3D recons on all of them. Okay. Uh, I don't 
do that now. Um, <laughs> you know, so is that, is that better or worse? I'm not sure. I think some of it was definitely, um, was helpful in a learning environment to kind of get a better understanding of the natural position and the natural forces that happen through these fracture patterns. And then once you sort of understand, okay, these are the quote unquote classic patterns of where the, where the proximal humerus breaks and where those pieces go. Um, in my practice now, you know, I, I like the CT scan, particularly axial cut. So I don't, I don't find the sagittal and the coronal cuts as helpful. And for me in the axial cut, I want to look at where the GT, the greater tuberosity is gone and is the LT or the tuberosity involved. Um, and what is helpful there is understanding how big those pieces are. Is there some comminution there? And what do I have to do to get to them? Because, you know, as we can imagine the forces on those fragments, certainly for the, you know, greater tuberosity, the frequent displacement is posterior and superior. Um, and understanding how, how far back has that piece gone and how much am I going to have to do to get there? And for the lesser tuberosity, I think that's a fracture pattern that we kind of undercall on the x-ray because it sits anteriorly. And so when you see the x-ray, uh, you may or may not be fooled to say the LT is not fractured or the LT is in place. And really it's typically kind of pulled medially, um, by this, you know, by the attachments there. And, and so I like to know where it is in relation to the humeral head and in relation to the GT. So I get a better sense of what my steps are going to be there to reconstruct it. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So you're, you're mainly looking at the axials, you're checking your displacement of your lesser greater tuberosity fractures. And, you know, we have these, we'll get into it in a bit, but they have kind of predictable patterns of displacements uh, based on, you know, their soft tissue attachments, uh, attachments of the rotator cuff. And I know you're saying that your coronal, you don't use, um, you don't use those cuts as much. Um, I mean, they're there and then you also have your sagittal view, but you don't use those cuts as much. Um, now for classification, can you kind of take us through uh, the classification system? I know there's one more historical classification and one that, you know, more people use now, uh, but can you kind of take us through the classifications for these proximal humerus fractures? Yeah, of course. So, you know, the classification, um, the classifications of anything are, are, um, are useful to kind of help speak the same language as we talk about these fracture patterns. You know, for for proximal humerus fractures, unfortunately, we we don't have a great one. So we we use the near classification, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, they are they are kind of more to allow us to understand the fracture pattern and less useful in sort of helping us define how patients are going to do or if they need surgery. So in an ideal classification, it would provide you an ability to speak the same language, to describe the fracture pattern, to tell you what to do with the fracture and then for outcome. And really, I think it's important specifically in proximal humors that we know that none of our classifications, at least at this point, help with that. So, you know, you, you alluded to a historical one. So the Codman classification, you know, interestingly reading, you know, who Dr. Codman, Dr. Near were, 
you know, these are, are not sort of, or Dr. Cobman at least was not a uh, orthopedic surgeon, but certainly describing the anatomy or the parts of the proximal humerus, really that's sort of where we still are today. So we describe the four parts of the humerus being the shaft, the LT, lesser tuberosity, the greater tuberosity, and then the head. And then what uh, with Dr. Neer did was sort of take those fragments or those parts of the proximal humerus and then define them in terms of a fracture pattern and a fracture classification. So um, what Dr. Neer did was say, okay, if you have a fracture and one of those parts is displaced more than a centimeter or angled more than 45 degrees, that is a, um, that is a, um, a part, a separate part. And now we can define that within the classification. And so we describe a two part fracture, i.e. there's two parts of the bone that are broken. Those are typically sort of like surgical neck fractures. Um, and all the way up to a four part fracture where you have all four fragments that are displaced from each other or angulated from each other. Um, and in the perfect world, a four part fracture pattern would predict a worse prognosis, which is you know, probably true um, compared to a three part or two part fracture. Um, you know, the difficulty with the near classification is as you can imagine, one centimeter or 45 degrees is a long way away or a long, a lot of displacement yeah. uh, in the shoulder. <laughs> so, very true. so we kind of cheat, right? We, you, you'll often hear people say, oh, it's a three part fracture um, when those fragments probably don't meet the requirements of the, the rigid sort of near classification. But those are, those are still the ones we use today, uh, despite all of the you know, sort of the issues with them, so to speak. And I meant to uh, to put a slide in here, but can you discuss or just take us through the different parts, like um, you know, the like the what the difference between the anatomical neck versus surgical neck, uh, just like these different parts of the proximal humerus? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the the surgical neck is sort of that part um, where the humeral head. Uh, I, comes into the metaphysis and attaches to the shaft. Uh, so if you drew a, a line straight across there, we, we would you know call that the, the surgical neck. For the anatomic neck, if you can imagine uh, the articular surface of the head uh, now attaching to an area of the greater tuberosity and, and a line you know, roughly 100, uh, 135 degrees or so down to the uh, metaphysis immediately uh, on the shaft is sort of the anatomic neck, so to speak. If you look there, that's the join, the joining area between the articular surface and the, the metaphysis of the bone. Um, and then the lesser tuberosity and the greater tuberosity. So those are just the, the larger kind of protuberances on the bone where uh, our muscles attach. And between them lies the bicipital groove. So where the biceps, long head of the biceps tendon runs between the greater tuberosity and the lesser tuberosity. Perfect. And, and you alluded to it a little bit, um, a little bit earlier regarding kind of our greater tuberosity and some of the displacement, but, you know, we know to these like proximal humerus fractures, they have a, a, like we have the pathoanatomy behind it, you know, like what we can expect, you know, kind of the, the, displacing forces like how in um like in hip fractures you know you, you know that proximal fragment is typically flexed and externally rotated uh what can you kind of t walk us through some of the pathoanatomy for these uh, proximal humerus fractures and you know 
what attaches where and and uh, that kind of that predictable um, uh, pattern for different fractures. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that is the that is the nice thing about uh, orthopedics. You know, form and function uh, often follow each other. So uh, in the in the proximal humerus with the attachments, so the muscular attachments, as we were just saying the bony protuberances or the bony uh, tuberosities of the proximal humerus are where the muscles attach. And so for the greater tuberosity, if you imagine that the predominance of the rotator cuff, so the supraspinatus and infraspinatus are attaching there uh, along with the, the teres minor, you're really going to see that those muscles, if, if you have a fracture where the greater tuberosity is free, are going to pull that fragment superior and posterior. So you have a classic pattern of a, an isolated greater tuberosity fracture where the bone is elevated into the sort of subacromial space and then posterior to the, to the head. And, uh, and so that's for the greater tuberosity. When we talk about the lesser tuberosity, uh, really we're talking there is the subscapularis attachment. Um, and so the subscap pulls almost directly into internal rotation. So if the LT or the lesser tuberosity is broken, it's classic pattern is to medialize or to, to come towards the scapula. Uh, and often it'll sit sort of tucked right, right in front of the glenoid um, in, a, in a really retracted uh, lesser tuberosity fracture. And then the shaft has got uh, additional uh, attachments of the latissimus as well as the pec. And so what you quite often see for the shaft um, where, the, where the sole neck is, is fractured is internal rotation and medialization. And so it's really the internal rotation that causes problems, but the medialization of the shaft is, is um, very easily seen on the X-ray. You don't see the rotation quite as much. And that's something to be thoughtful of as to consider repairing these. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't think about that. I've all, you know, you always read the medialization of the shaft seg segment with the pec major, but I, I mean, I guess now that you say it, it, it makes sense that it internally rotates, but uh, yeah, I guess you don't, you really don't appreciate, I guess, how much um, internal rotation there is. Uh, and, and then regarding the bicipital groove, what is, I guess, the importance of, you know, whether that's fractured or not and, and what it has to do with these, you know, proximal humerus fractures? Yeah, so we, you know, most proximal humerus fracture surgeons and shoulder surgeons, um, the biceps is sort of our lighthouse. And, and really what you want to do is find that as quickly and as efficiently as you can when you're, when you're fixing them uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, there is really sort of sclerotic heavy bone in this groove. And, and like we were talking about, it sits between the LT and the GT. And so the beauty of having uh, that, that groove there is it, it can really help orient the fracture fragments. It can help orient you. Um, and nine times out of 10, unless it's a very high energy injury or there's some, some other trauma that's happened, the, the, tuber, the inner tuber groove or the bicipital groove uh, is intact. So that fragment is actually an intact fragment. And so we're gonna use that to start piecing together where all our other fragments should be. And it helps guide us in terms of rotation about where we're starting to think about retroversion or antiversion of the humeral head 
in terms of our fixation and, and placement and anatomic reduction. So uh, it's a critical structure that we really use to, to help orient us, but so to help us start to reconstruct the proximal humerus. Okay. Yeah, I think that um, that serves, you know, I guess, you know, one thing that'd be on, on a note for just like you said, if that is if that bicipital groove is fractured, that just kind of clues you into the amount of energy that was needed to, uh, or the amount of energy uh, that, that, you know, that, that, that sustained that injury, you know, to, in order to fracture that bicipital groove, just given how, uh, how dense that area is. And, and another thing that they typically, they tend to test us a lot on is kind of the vascularity of the humeral head. And I know there's been, you know, in the past, we used to think it was most of the blood supply was from one artery, now it's from another. Uh, can you kind of break it down like the vascularity to the humeral head and why it's important and I guess what it is? Yeah, um, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, realistically, there's, I think, I don't want to say still controversy, but certainly there are, there is question about, you know, what the most important artery is and why. I think the most important thing to know is just that there is two, two aspects of blood supply to the humeral head. Um, they're both branches off the axillary artery. And so you get this anterior and your posterior circumflex humeral arteries. And really together, they fill various parts of the proximal humerus. Now, historically, we used to think sort of in the anterior um uh, artery was more important and now through some, uh, you know, probably a little, little better study design, um, there's been this push to kind of say that the posterior circumflex humeral artery is important, but I think much like, uh, much like think about for femoral neck fractures or, or hip fractures, we have retrograde flow of blood. So the circumflex arteries are coming off the axillary artery distal, uh, distal to the head. They're entering uh, onto the bone and then running up the bone into the neck area. And then once they get to the capsular attachments, and so for the, um, for the anterior circumflex artery, this is the arcuate artery. You can see it when you look at the biceps groove, it's running right beside the biceps. Um, this gets to the greater tuberosity and then perforates through the capsular um, attachments into the bone and provides retrograde uh, interosseous flow to the humeral head. The exact same process happens with the posterior uh, circumflex. Uh, and so this retrograde flow, as you can imagine, if you have a, let's say a surgical neck or an anatomic neck fracture, suddenly that retrograde flow to the humeral head may be disrupted. And so we start to worry about things like AVN and fracture healing. Yeah. And you uh, kind of just transitioned yourself into the next thing I was going to ask <laughs> um, this kind of the AVN risk. Can you kind of talk a little bit about, uh, you know, AVN, why it's important, you know, what, which patients are at higher risk for, uh, for AVN. And I, I think there's some type of criteria as well uh, that I've stumbled upon during my uh, uh, question um, doing, <laughs> preparing for OITEs, if you don't mind uh, touching on that as well. Yeah, for sure. So I think um, a couple a couple of things to, to know. Obviously, if you think about the uh, the blood supply we just talked about, any fracture in that location potentially has a chance to disrupt the flow. And really, as you start to think about both the anterior and posterior circumflex arteries, there the fracture patterns whereby the maybe the surgical neck 
uh, is involved, you're, you may or may not have affected that circumflex flow. As you get to the anatomic neck, so you're, now you're getting more proximal on the humerus, just like we think about for subcapital, um, subcapital femoral neck fractures, um, or something like a very proximal scaphoid fracture, that blood supply is more likely to be disrupted. Um, so that's how, that's sort of like a global way of looking at it. And then Hurdle um, et al, they, they did a really nice study looking at predictors of failure and predictors of AVN. And what they came up with were kind of intuitive um, factors, but really when you think about them uh, each in isolation, you, not, you, you may not put them together, but, uh, but certainly if we, again, go back to the more proximal the fracture. So as we start to lose, we call the metaphyseal uh, extension or, or we lose the, um, the calcar bone below the articular surface, that obviously tells us that the fracture is more proximal and therefore that blood supply or that ring of blood supply may be more disrupted. Um, the number that they throw, it's eight millimeters. So if you're looking at the, the bone below the, the articular surface and it's less than eight millimeters, that's a high risk fracture pattern. If you think about the fracture where the shaft has been violently pulled away from the head and now the shaft and the head are clearly dissociated and we call that, you know, disruption of the medial hinge. Um, clearly those that have a disruption of the medial hinge where the the shaft is moved relative to the head or at higher risk because the blood supply is intricately attached to the shaft in that location. Fractures where the fragments are very far apart or very angulated. Again, these like four part and true four part fractures where they are one centimeter away or they've got lots of uh, angulation. Again, makes sense. Um, and then any fractures that are associated with a dislocation. So those are kind of the main ones that we want to think about. And then the kind of wild card is what we call the head split. So those are fractures where the head itself has been split in half. Um, and in the most cases, it's sort of like a three or a four part fracture. So you have an LT fracture, a GT fracture, and then a head fragment that's also split in half. Really, that's kind of almost like a five part fracture, so to speak of. And again, those are uh, harbingers of, of of poor blood supply, potential AVN and potential non-union. And those kind of get our spy, you know, spidey sense uh, tingling because those are really hard fractures to treat. Now, now one of the things I get confused about, so I guess sometimes I'm still confused about, maybe we can clear it up here is in my head, if you have a fracture through the surgical neck, then is not, is, does that not mean like automatically the metaphyseal extension is less than, like, is, like, isn't that going to be less than eight millimeters if you have a fracture through the surgical neck? Yeah, great question. You know, yes, yes and no, I guess is a short answer to kind of even further confuse things. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think what we really want to see the same way we look at a, uh, a proximal femur, right? If you, if you look and see that there's some calcar um, or, or cortical bone below the articular surface. And sometimes that's sort of an oblique surgical neck fracture or a surgical neck fracture that is slightly more distal. Um, 
you can have a surgical neck fracture that has a long medial extension. Um, and, and so what that is probably telling you is that the, the tissues of the capsule, the tissues of the, the blood vessels are intact because the fracture hasn't quite disrupted that little tiny hinge uh, medially and, and distally. So you can, I think, you know, what we really want to see is an oblique fracture at the surgical neck, giving you a nice long spike below the articular surface. I think that's the sort of ideal fracture pattern if you had to pick pick one if you were if you were going to have a proximal humerus fracture. Ah, does that okay. help? That no, sense? yeah, that 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 does make sense because I remember reading this and I was like, that doesn't make. I was like, if there's a fracture through the surgical neck, then by definition they're all. But no, that, yeah, that makes sense if you have the I guess more of a long oblique or you know, the more proximal that that fracture line comes through, you know, lets you know that's where the energy went through. So you're likely to have disrupted, you know, those soft tissues, because again, it's a, all these bony fractures or soft tissue injuries with a fracture around it. So, you know, you definitely, um, you definitely uh, may have a higher chance of injuring those soft tissues. Um, now, kind of what I want to do is, I guess, quickly um, touch base on uh, the approaches that are used for the, I guess, the work, work, um, I guess, the, for fixing the majority of these fractures, and then we can go into uh, each type of fracture and, you know, you know, I guess, indications for fixing versus non-op and kind of go from there. Um, so what are some of the, um, I guess, common surgical approaches when we look at fixing these proximal humerus fractures? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the, the, definitely the workhorse, um, is the delta pectoral approach or the proximal, um, proximal aspect of the extensile Henry approach, if you want to get really fancy, but, okay. um, but like the, but the delta, that. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but the, the deltoid, you know, the, the delta pec, um, incision is probably probably the most commonly used, certainly uh, in Europe and in a couple of places around the world, the deltoid sit is another very commonly used approach. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, there are some sort of MEPO hybrid approaches or minimally invasive uh, approaches that you can use that kind of use various aspects of either the deltoid split or the delta pec. Um, but those are probably the two most uh, widely used approaches. Uh, you know, if you had to pick and choose what the advantages are of each, certainly the deltoid split approach being a lateral based approach can really help you get to the back of the shoulder. So if you've got a GT fragment that's way out the back, um, that's certainly one of the advantages of the approach of the deltoid split. I think the other main approach is it can be very soft tissue preserving. Um, you're, you're going through the raffe of the deltoid, you're not cutting any muscle, um, and you really don't have to disrupt any of the soft tissues, either at the front back or the side of the, the humerus to, to get where you need to be. Um, the advantage of the deltoid, uh, the delta pec approach is really, it's an extensile approach. You can, you can access everywhere from the clavicle to the wrist through the, through the Delta pec approach or a variation of the Delta pec approach. But the one challenge of the Delta pec approach is it's an anterior approach for a lateral plating. So, you know, we'll probably get to this in a bit, but our, our current constructs for fixation for, for plating are lateral based plates. And so your ability to reduce and fixate 
are kind of at odds with your approach. And, and so there's some tricks and tips to sort of help you around there, but certainly the Delta Peck approach is probably the most common for, for that reason, just as it's, it's very utilitarian. Okay. And I think that was a good overview of the approaches. Again, um, Delta Prec, you know, very, you know, extensile workhorse of the, uh, of the shoulder, but again, your, you know, your lateral plating, so it can be kind of composed some issues versus the deltoid splitting approach where you go in between the raffae of the mill and anterior deltoid gives you a little bit more uh, exposure uh, of those posterior fragments. And of course you gotta be worried about your axillary nerve distally about five centimeters distal to your chromin running from, um, from posterior to anterior. Thank you all for listening to part one of this two-part episode on proximal humerus fractures featuring Dr. Strelzo. We hope that you all are enjoying this so far. I really covered a lot. And now next we will uh, get into treatment. So without further ado, we hope you all enjoy our next episode. Please hit that subscribe button and tell a friend or two or three or four or your whole program or your whole faculty. You know, just tell, tell everybody. That would help out a bunch. Until next time.